Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind everyone that if you enjoy this or any of the episodes, I'd appreciate it if you give the show a follow. You can also keep track of all the new releases by following me on Twitter at Cody Commerce or by signing up for my weekly newsletter. Thanks for listening. It's a huge honor to have on our guest for today. He is a big freaking deal on a whole other level. Uh, the first time I saw him in person was when he was giving a talk a while back at Boston University. He was giving a talk, the thrust of which was about being against empathy. And at the end of his talk, I was left with the unassailable feeling that, wow, I really like this guy. And I think he might be just about the only person in the world who can pull off that juxtaposition. He's written a number of excellent books, including Against Empathy and How Pleasure Works. He's engaged in one of academia's cutest frenemies slash bromances with uh, Jimmy Ozaki of Stanford, who is decidedly not against empathy. And uh, he's just overall a thinker with an outstanding level of clarity and uniqueness. He thinks for himself, and when he does, he clarifies his own thoughts enough that it, it makes his audience do the same, regardless of their conclusion. He is the Brooks and Suzanne Reagan Professor of Psychology and Cognitive Science at Yale University. Please welcome Paul Bloom. Hey, Paul, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Cody. Great. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, so, Paul, just to get a sense of what you do, uh, what does your average day look like right now? So I'm a psychologist at, uh, at Yale University. Um, my average day, I'm actually currently in Toronto. I'm, I'm sort of going back and forth a little bit this semester. I'm not teaching. My average day, if it goes well, uh, begins with writing. So, uh, you know, on a perfect day, I, I, I wake up at, you know, 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock and immediately get myself some coffee, immediately sit in front of a computer. And on a day which goes the way I want it to go, I'll write. I'll write for an hour on a long-term project. Right now I'm working on a book. And then I tend to work uh, through the morning, typically at home or wherever I'm staying, um, answering emails, writing reference letters, working on papers, talking about data with students, going back and forth. I tend to get to work around noon. And then um, my day will, be in, will involve meetings with students, lab meetings, going to talks, teaching. If I'm teaching, I'm teaching next semester an undergraduate, uh, a big undergraduate course, Intro to Psych. And, um, and that takes me to the end of the day. So, so when I could work things right, I spend the morning solitary, working ideally on long-term projects, and the afternoon when my energy is a bit lower, and so I benefit from the socialization, um, I spend you know, doing stuff with other people. Yeah. So I'm interested in that first sort of hour that you're talking about where you give your first fruits of the day to, to writing. What are your, do you have goals on, you know, I need one to get X amount of words done uh, or is it purely just putting in the time for it? <laughs> you're getting into my favorite, one of my favorite topics, uh, productivity <laughs> porn. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's life hacker and this is what I'm asked. This is how I work. Yeah. Um, so, so, I, I've long been a believer. Um, I've, I've read Cal Newport's work on deep work, and um, 
But I've long been a believer that for each of us, there's sort of a time when we're at our best for sustained, difficult work. And for me, like most people, it's the morning. Um, so I couldn't do interesting work to save my life at three in the afternoon. It's, it's the mornings are best for me. And then um, sometimes the evenings. Sometimes, you know, around nine o'clock, I get a second wind. Yeah. And apparently there's some research. Daniel Pink has a book called When, suggesting that for many people, this is the way it goes. Our mornings are our best time for sustained, difficult work. So my worst morning would be taking my precious time and blowing it on email or Twitter or something like that. My best morning... Which you've never done before, I'm sure. Never, 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 never wasted an enormous <laughs> amount of time on, on yeah. social media. Yeah. Um, so I, I try, I, on my perfect day, what I do is I try to spend an hour, set a clock to an hour on working. And I don't have a word, a word count. Um, I just work for an hour. I just, I, I, um, I have a sort of problem with focus. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll maybe, I'll have a word processing file or you know, a Scrivener file of my book, and I'll just bounce back and forth between different chapters. Working 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. You know, trying to work on an argument or trying to think through something. Really, so you'll spend you'll spend ten minutes working on something and just you know, uh, do it do what you can there. That burst comes to you, and then you go on to the next one. Yes, in fact, it's sometimes worse than that. When I when I'm done my hour, or sometimes instead of it, honestly, I have a timer on my computer, um, and it's a six minute timer. And so I, I hit, and I look. I want to tell you this, and people I love have told me this is insane. This is not. I wouldn't recommend this to anybody, but for some people it might work. So I have a piece of paper on my side, a six-minute timer, and I say go, and I work six minutes on my book. Then the timer dings, and I stop. Could be mid-sentence, and then I work on a reference letter for six minutes, and then it goes ding again. And I'm uh, I'm an editor of a journal, so I work on a paper to 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 uh, send to reviewers for six minutes. Then I treat myself to six minutes of Twitter or six minutes of email. Maybe it goes ding again and I do the dishes. And then it goes ding again and then I'm you know, working on, on a reference letter. Well, wait, okay, and so then, what, what's the point? What, what does this get you? How does this work what for it gets, you? What it gets me is I don't get worn out. Yeah. I, get, I get constantly stimulated. I, I could work on, you could do anything in the world no matter how difficult if you know you just have to do it for six minutes. So did, what does that uh, sort of motivational you know, uh, and focus aspect of it outweigh the switching costs? Or are there no switching costs because you're sort of just bada bing, bada boom, sort of you know, carousel deal? It's a strange gift, but I don't have any switching costs. Yeah. I, think, I think switching costs are kind of overblown. You read this stuff, you know, I, I don't know, I, I, I've read people say, oh, every time you stop to check an email, it takes you 10 minutes to recover and everything. You just made up facts. <laughs> you know, you know so, so again, your mileage may vary. Some people need an hour, they can't work for less than an hour on a sustained project. I've actually known people who can't work for less than a day. Like, they need, if they're going to work on a book or a paper, they need to carve out a day to do it, to get their heads together to work into it and everything. And I've never been like that. You know, I could, I could you know, be sitting on a, on a streetcar and then pop up my laptop and get some writing in. Right. So, so kind of along those lines, uh, so you have that hour dedicated to, to writing. Do you, do you find that you have to do some preliminary work to get to a place where you know what you're going to say? Does a lot of that, does the part of that hour ever go to research? Or is it always just, I'm putting words on page and as long as I'm, you know, on focus, on task, then that works out. 
It's an interesting question. It's almost a moral question for what I could <laughs> include under the hour. So yeah. I, I, I have in front of me some books I'm looking at for, for the writing I'm doing, and I have this book called, by Galen Strawson called Things That Bother Me, which is a series of, of essays. God, you find and things find, with the best titles. <laughs> yes, this is a good title. Oh, my God. Um, and, um, and I find it sufficiently enjoyable to read. I'm reading this along with uh, Tyler Cowen's Stubborn Attachments that I don't count it for my hour. Yeah. Because I, could, I just love it. The hour should be spent on difficult stuff. But I do spend a lot of the hour going through articles, you know, reading them, copying chunks of them to later summarize and think back on them, and so on. So it isn't necessarily each minute of the hour I'm tapping my own words on a page. Cool. Well, that's really interesting to hear about some of your process um, for your, you know, incredibly productive, you know, current stage and every, everything that's really interesting that you're working on. And I'd like, I'd like to talk a little bit now um, about earlier on in your career. Um, when, uh, you know, when did you get a sense of the, the basic questions that interest you? So, uh, you know, language development, that sort of earlier stuff that you worked on. Yeah. Um, when I was, I was an undergraduate at McGill, and up to then I was a poor, a very poor student, indifferent, um, didn't do well, not very happy in my life, not very, uh, not very productive. And, um, and I started to, to in, fact, in fact, if I was in any other place besides Canada, I would have never probably got to a university of any quality. But because I lived in the area of McGill, they just accepted me. This is the way they worked. I would never get into school at that quality of my grades and my, my skill set now. Um, in, in any other place, I mean. So, so I did an undergraduate degree in psychology. At that point, um, my brother is, uh, is severely autistic, and I had done a lot of work in summer camps and after-school programs, so I thought maybe be a clinical person working with, um, with, with kids with uh, autism and other, and other uh, similar problems. And I wasn't good at it, I didn't enjoy it, but I figured that's what I would end up doing. And then I, um, I was in an honors program at McGill, and we're supposed to find an advisor, and I was very late doing it, as typical of me, and, I, and all of the clinical advisors who I should be connecting with were already full up. So I ended up in the office of John McNamara, who I didn't even know who he was. And John McNamara is a very interesting figure in our field. He's, um, he sort of works on the interfacing of psychology and philosophy. And, um, and then I fell under his orbit, and he was fascinated by language acquisition, by concepts, by reasoning. And it was one of these chance meetings. You know, I just went to his office by, you know, randomly. I'll just knock on this guy's door. And, you know, it was one of these things. It ended up transforming my life. It ended up getting me into first studying language and then other things. It, um, it was at a party at his house. I met my, my wife. Wow. Uh, you know, and, uh, and so, so, um, so I, that's how I got into it. And then, and then I worked with Susan Carey and, to some extent, Steve Pinker in graduate school, mostly, mostly on lang- issues of language and concepts. Yeah, and then afterwards, my, my I'm still I still retain an interest in these topics, but I've I've gone on to become interested in other things, including uh, moral psychology. Yeah. So when you were starting out with McNamara, do you remember like a moment uh, that you were talking to him or, or or listening to one of his talks that was like, wow, this is incredibly interesting, important work? Do you remember when that would have been for you? Yeah, I would. I. I don't remember any specific experience. But I remember going to his office and sitting next to him at his desk, and he would, um, you know, this was so far back, and he was himself a very, very traditional scholar. So, 
I, he, I don't think he used email. Um, there, was no, there was no web at the time. Um, and even then, I think he, hand, he handwritten his manuscripts and had a secretary typed them out. I mean, this is very, very old school. And he'd sit next to me, and he had pieces of paper in front of, in front of us, and he would draw logical formula and give examples. He was very interested in categories and how they worked. And the, the logic of hierarchical categories, like, you know, um, a dog, uh, you know, a chihuahua is a kind of dog, and a dog is a kind of animal, and how do you formalize all that? And honestly, my feeling then was confusion. He, in some way, was not particularly clear. He didn't talk in a way I could understand. And I felt lost and kind of anxious. But with that was this sense of excitement, that there was this entire world out there of extraordinary ideas and great philosophers and brilliant, um, brilliant endeavors. And that this guy held a key to them. And if I really struggled, I could catch up. And, and it's funny because I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with clarity. I think clarity is important in writing and lecturing. Um, I work very hard for it. I appreciate it in others. And John wasn't at all clear. He was just, he, he just set something in front of me and there was a chasm to get there. And it made me want to jump, jump over that. It made me want to get there. Wow, yeah. Um, yeah, so what, so the inspiration was kind of there. And then how did you transition from being, uh, you know, sort of this poor student, not very applied in classes, to being on the track for grad school? Um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It, it was, to some extent, John's influence. To some extent, um, when I went to university, I made a conscious attempt to recreate myself. Really? So what, what did that um, look like? So, so some of it was, um, some of it was, 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 was of a personal nature, which, which you know, goes, goes in, in a different direction than your question. Got it. But a lot of, but a lot of it was, um, was more making a conscious decision to do work. Yeah. I think I made it to university without ever having done homework. And it's not because I was this crazy genius. It's just I didn't do very well in school because I didn't do homework. Yeah. You know, I did some minimal amount. And I would read voraciously. Uh, but, um, but I would, you know, read fiction. And I'd, I'd read other things. And I just would never really apply myself. Yeah. So I think I've always had kind of a good mind for picking up things and for integrating things. And that's what kept me from, like, literally failing at a school. But, but it was only in university I decided to, in some sense, apply myself. Yeah, wow, that's really cool. Um, do you, have there been other periods in your life where you had conscious, you tried to consciously recreate yourself or, or up your game or go to this next level? Never to that extent. But there was a certain point many years ago where I decided, I, I was an um, assistant professor at University of Arizona. I was, you know, my career was doing fine. I was, you know working on different things and working with students and just, you know, chugging along. And then I sort of made a conscious, I asked myself, and I remember sort of explicitly asked myself, where do I want to be five years from now? And it wasn't a question I would normally ask myself. And then I decided, well, you know, this is fine, but what I want to do is I want to try to be some sort of, you know, I know a lot of people hate, hate the phrase, but some sort of public intellectual. Yeah. I want to write for a broader audience. I want to try my hand at that. Um, Steve Pinker, who I've always admired very much, has made such a career out of that. And I said, well, you know, maybe I could try to do what he's doing. 
And so, you know, I, I, I wrote an op-ed piece for New York Times. I, I got an agent and a book contract, and I started to do that. And then, you know, so, and occasionally in my life I've had, I've had transitions, but, but never the sort of transition I had when I was 17, 18, 19. I think, you know, and, you know, for obvious reasons. The end of adolescence, becoming a, a full-blown adult, right. is a time of extraordinary change, which you, you, you know, I think you people typically do just once. Yeah. Um, so what 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 was it that uh, sort of inspired that first uh, you know foray into wanting to do uh, you know work that's directed at a general audience instead of specialists? Um. In part, it was. Um, In part, it was, it was boredom. It was, uh, you know, I, I was enjoying what I was doing, but it was more of the same. And then so I wanted to do something different. I think in part, it was um, the feeling that I, there's another, there, there, you know, there's another life for me where I could have become a writer, a novelist. And I've always liked writing. Yeah. And, um, and I think, you know, in retrospect, I was nowhere near as good to, to make that into a career. But for us, like for an academic, I said, I could write pretty well, write better than my colleagues, you know. Yeah. So maybe I could use this gift to go forward. Yeah. And then sometimes it was that, you know, there, there are two kinds of responses you get when you, um, when you look at other people's best-selling books and other people's publications. So one is a feeling of sort of, oh my God, I wish I could do, do write half as well as that. That's amazing. I aspire towards that. And you feel this kind of gnawing fear you'll never get close. And then, and then there's the feeling you read some stuff, and okay, I'm not going to give names here. But you read some stuff, and they, holy cow, that's crap. This guy's, <laughs> this guy's, you know, this guy's famous, and everybody's reading his stuff, and, and you know, what a moron. Yeah. And horrible writing. Yeah. Boy, it's crap. I can do better than that. So I had, you know, it's not the world's best motivation, but um, I had that motivation. But also, you know, I looked at people I really admired. Yeah. You know, and I, I mentioned Pinker, and there were some others, and saying, so, you know. Wow, I, what if I could try to enter that world? Yeah, uh, no, I think that's really funny. I uh, I have a principle of uh, reading a certain number of books that I don't like or that I think uh, you know are, are poorly written because you learn so much uh, from those uh, those those things that you interpret as poor quality works that still go on to sell a ton of copies and everything like that. Uh, and, you know, you learn, you know, maybe some things about what does or doesn't work, but then you also get the sense of like, okay, this is possible to do if even this person can make it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's not, you know, the, the world could be so discouraging. You know, when, when I was thinking of becoming a novelist, I would read these, you know, these wonderful novels by, by people I admired very much, you know, Margaret Atwood or Ian McEwan, and I said, I, I can't get close to this. It's ridiculous. But so sometimes you want to read the bad stuff, right? And you want to hear the bad stuff, and and also sometimes the bad stuff is in some way closer to where you are now. Yeah. So you can say, well, at least I could do that. Yeah. And uh, so, and and in some sense, it's when when um, when my students watch job talks, go to job talks we have at Yale. Um, the good ones can be super informative, but the bad ones could be informative too. Right. Right. I'll, I'll say now, just thinking about that time, that that. It is very different from, from the world you now live in. And one thing, for better or worse, you have this enormous access to all sorts of information and lectures and, and books and articles that I never had. 
And I don't know, in some way, um, there were advantages to the world I lived in, but I think that, that, you know, if you become interested in developmental psychology or Jungian psychoanalysis or quantum physics, you could sit down and watch lectures and, and, and delve in and even, you know, participate in dialogues and start, start a podcast for all that, you know. Yeah. There, are, there are far more avenues now made possible by the internet. And it makes it just, you know, I, I have a feeling I would have been a much happier adolescent if I lived in these times. Interesting. Um, so if you ha- so you looked up to Steve Pinker a lot in sort of making your transition to the broader audience. If uh, And I know for a fact that, you know, you've inspired, you know, lots of people uh, in sort of the same transition, right? In, in at, least, at least in part, uh, myself included. Oh, that's kind of you to say. Thank you. Um, yeah, so what sort of advice would you give someone sort of starting at that uh, sort of place now or interested in, in playing around with those kind of forays or different transitions, that sort of stuff? What, what do you wish you knew or what do you think is applicable now that wasn't applicable back then? It's a really good question. I mean, there, there's the banal kind of advice, but still not bad. Read a lot. You know, for every bit of advice, there are exceptions, and I'm sure there's some geniuses who managed to pop into the world doing great stuff without ever having, you know, done the requisite reading. But, but those are bizarre exceptions, and, and those sort of exceptions don't need any advice anyway. Um, I think you need to read a lot. I think you need, and here's some sort of very specific advice that's useful. Um, you need to, um, to find your own rhythms of work. So, so I think for most people, um, a really good strategy, no matter what stage you are, if you want to enter, you know, you want to enter the public world, you want to enter science or scholarship, is not just to read a lot, but to write. Because to, 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 you just get better the more you write. You could write for blogs, you could try to write for, for magazines, you could, you could go on social media and everything. So find time in your life to read and find time in your life to write. And then, this is less true now than it used to be, obviously because of the internet, but it's useful to find yourself in one of the world's communities of um, where people are doing the cool stuff you're most interested in doing. So for many of us, that's not possible. Many people, particularly if you're young, you're just not, you're not going to pick up your, your, your stuff and, and move to Cambridge, Massachusetts, or London, or Brooklyn, New York, or whatever, and, or, or Silicon Valley. But if you can, finding yourself in that situation is of tremendous value. Right. You know, I, went, I was lucky enough to go to graduate school at MIT, and the, the community of really smart people there um, it just makes you smarter and makes and, and makes you better. And I don't think I think it was, I, I don't think it's as important now because the community can be a virtual one. But still, the idea of being able to sort of regularly have your friends and, and the people around you, just doing exciting, cool stuff in a, in a population big enough to sustain that sort of interest, it, it's extremely useful. Yeah, that's interesting. So. Obviously, one way you can sort of go about that is, you know, if you have somewhere like MIT or Harvard or whatever, you can pick based off of a name brand. There's a good chance that'll be an interesting community like you're talking about. But, but another way that you've done that is that you've picked really, uh, at least in my reading of it, uh, great uh, topics that were timely. You got in, uh, if not on the ground floor, 
and really good times for you know language acquisition and developmental psychology for moral psychology later on um so uh you obviously have a sense of taste for these communities of interesting people and these you know kinds of interesting topics that those communities are looking at uh what do you think informs that taste or where does that come from how do you make those those sort of decisions i think to some extent i've been lucky so I ended up, uh, you know, moral psychology is a good example. Just um, and now it's all over the place. And I just ended up finding myself in, in, in that community of really sharp people. Like, you know, I look around my department and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm next door to Lori Santos. Um, next, you know, in a few days I'm having lunch with, with Molly Crockett. Um, this really young, brilliant guy from MIT, Julian Jarrett, and on the other side of my office. Um, and, you know, and that's just on my floor. And, and Josh Nob, the, the experimental philosopher, is brilliant, has long been a friend and collaborator. I've just been, been lucky to choose a field that has so many smart people. I, I think, to some extent, there's a matter of taste that academics have. So some academics really like a kind of crowded area. They're like an area where everybody is working on it intensely. So um, implicit bias. If you're a social psychologist, you know, you, 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 so many people work on implicit bias, and it's such a, a crowded area. And there's a lot of value to being in that kind of area. Personally, I like fields that are a little bit more sparse, where we're kind of just starting out. And, um, and so that's what I've been, I've been drawn to. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. to, to some extent, as, as you're asking me these questions, some of, so much of it is just my own personal taste. Um, I've bounced from area to area in my career. I know people who graduated at the same time as me who were still working on exactly the same projects they were working on in their dissertation. Yeah. Wow. And, and it's not for me, but, they're, but you know, some of them are just way, way more successful than me you know, professionally and better known and, and very happy with their work. It's, it's, some of it's a matter of personal style. Yeah, definitely. So, so um, that transition from being interested in developmental psychology to moral psychology, how, how did that, that happen? Was it at a, so it was at a time when there were fewer people working on moral psychology. How, how did you sort of discover that stuff, get interested in it? What did that transition look like for you? Um, the transition happened in, in a few separate ways. One way was I was a language acquisition guy, and Paul Rosen, who's this you know, brilliant iconoclastic psychologist, studies morality and disgust and food, gave a talk at University of Arizona where I was at. And that, that, so that, and, and that talk just stuck with me. And I kind of said for years, I want to do that kind of thing. So that was one thing. A second thing is um, I did collaborative work with babies on a, with, with a Karen Wynn and then this brilliant young graduate student, Kylie Hamlin, who's now a professor at UBC on social evaluation in babies, and that gradually transformed into study of moral psychology. And actually, I became the, that work, work run by Kylie and Karen became the basis for my book, Just Babies. And then a third factor was, um, I'm in my office one day at Yale. I think I, was just, I just got there, kind of. And then this, uh, this young graduate student, David Pizarro, came. And we were just, we'd been talking about different things. And he was talking about this article that John Haidt just wrote called uh, something like an emotional dog and a rational tail, which was uh, a specific perspective on how to think about morality. And David and I both disagreed with it, and we decided to write a commentary. 
And that commentary was uh, the first thing I've ever written on, um, on moral psychology, and that got me into it as well. Yeah, wow. Um, so, so you obviously have a lot of different interests and an ability to sort of like bounce between them, both in terms of uh, what you're reading and what you're studying uh, and what you're producing in terms of, you know, six minutes on this, six minutes on that. Uh, what, what, what do you think are the sort of like outside interests, whether they're different kinds of psychology or different things away from science altogether, that have influenced most the way you think? Um, I, don't, I don't have any outside interests. Well, I mean, yeah, I'll take that back. Um, well, uh, fiction, I, I, right? I, I, Yes, I mean again. Again, it's a matter of style. So, so part of this business is finding your strengths. Um, Josh Tannenbaum at MIT just won the MacArthur Fellowship to Genius Award. Right. And I know Josh, and he so much deserves it. He has put together a sort of generative research program around uh, you know computational models and Bayesian theory across multiple domains with so many collaborators, runs this, this, this fascinating research program, and I feel nothing but admiration for that sort of stuff. But my own style is kind of different. My own style is I don't have whatever it takes to do that kind of thing, but I'm very good at, I think I'm relatively good at integrating different ideas from different fields and bringing them together. You know, that's my comparative advantage. Yeah. It's not that I could, it's not that I could, that, that, that's the one thing I have which is more than other people. And so, as a result of this, you know, I go to, um, I don't know, there was, um, I'm working on a book now, and, um, and I went to see um, Thor Ragnarok a little while ago. Um, very good Marvel movie. And at the beginning, they had a commercial for a bank. And the commercial for a bank said, you know, ended up quoting, had a wonderful quotation, and so I wrote it down. And you know, I'm watching TV, I'm reading novels, I'm talking to people, I'm getting stories, I'm watching YouTube videos, and I see connections. And so, you know, people talk about work-life balance, I have none. My life blurs into my work and my work blurs into my, into my life. You know, I, I, um, I, I wrote an article from The New Yorker a couple of months ago on perverse decisions. And, you know, when you're writing on a topic like that, you can't help but think about your own life or stories you hear from your friends. Um, and so, so all of my other things I do integrate into the sort of things I think about. You know, and I couldn't do this if I was a biochemist. But I'm a psychologist who's interested in human nature. And so everything is material. Yeah. You know, that New Yorker article is uh, another instance of you coming up with and finding things that have amazing titles. For example, I have, I have one of the, I, you know, just looked up one of the papers you cited in that. It's uh, how to think, say, or do precisely the worst thing for any occasion. Uh, yeah, but the late Dan Wagner, <laughs> who was a, a, a brilliant psychologist. I have, I have a, a weakness for, uh, for, for titles, and I, I, for good titles. I'm always interested in that. Yeah. Though I have to say, some people don't know this. Anything I publish in the New Yorker or Atlantic or New York Times, I don't get to choose the title. Oh, really? Yeah. The titles, the author can never choose a title. In some cases, the author could override a title if they're really upset by it. 
But they have people there whose job is to choose the title. So you don't even get to submit a like you know proposal for the title. They're just gonna they're gonna come up with it for you. I have submitted proposals and they've all been ignored. Oh wow, that's funny. So um, so the title I, I often find out the title for something I've written for a popular source um, when I when I see it online. Yeah. Um. So in fact, the title for the New Yorker article I think which they came to was. Uh, the strange allure of perverse desires or something like that. But the original perverse title, actions. which I like, was simply Perverse Incentives. Perverse uh, Actions, right? And that was okay, but they had one called Perverse Incentives, which I thought was very clever. Yeah. I'll tell you a really good title. It was for a different New Yorker article. Um, the online version was The Root of All Cruelty, which was you know, okay. But the title they chose for the magazine itself was simply Beastly, mm. which I really liked. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's really good. You know, so going back to uh, Josh Tenenbaum, who you mentioned, um, he uh, he was actually the person who first got me interested in in really? cognitive science. Yeah, uh, and so uh, through his through his writing, I through meeting. No, no, no. Like, so it's it's that it's that uh, that energy that when you get into a room with Josh Tenenbaum, you you feel that everyone is sort of directing their interest mm-hmm. towards what he's up to when he starts to speak. Every like no, there's no shuffling papers. There's no closing laptops. It's just sort of hanging on on those words, uh, and uh, it, you know it reminds me a lot of what you were describing with uh, McNamara, which is yeah. that even if you have no idea what the hell they're talking about, which in the first time I heard Josh Tenenbaum describe you know all this mathematical Bayesian yeah. stuff, I was like I have no idea like what he's saying, but I know it's like this you know, wow he's on to something here, and absolutely you know my my interests have changed as well. Uh, and I think part of part of it, uh, but, but I think a lot of it goes back to what you're saying about you know different people, different skills, and he is just off the charts on that ability to recruit and develop interest in the things that he believes in. Um, yep. And you have the ability to synthesize stuff from you know yep. superficially disparate domains. I'm interested since you know Steven Pinker really well, and you've mentioned him a couple times. What do you think that he does that's so, you know, makes him so phenomenally successful? Um, Steve is one of these people who's good at, at so many things. Um, I think if I just had to pick up something off the top of my head, um, he hits this very unusual sweet spot in his work. There's a lot of people who do substantive intellectual, novel intellectual contributions. You know, here's some, here, you know, Josh is one of them where here's an idea, it's very important, it'll change how you think, and so on. Then there's a fair number of people who are really good at communicating to the public ideas of research, you know. Um, and um, good, good science writers, for instance. Steve is both. Mm. So you take a book like, um, books like Enlightenment Now or The Better Angels of Our Nature, uh, where he makes this substantive claim, this substantive interesting, very controversial claim of interest to scholars, but at the same time, you know, a smart 15-year-old could, could read his books and really get into them. Yeah. And, you know, Steve has so many gifts, but, that's, but in some way that's his comparative advantage. There are not many people who can do that. Yeah. So I, I'm interested in your take on this. What's the... So a lot of people, especially, um, you know, Specialists within the field will give people like uh, Steve Pinker uh, crap for, you know, 
I don't know if selling out's the right term or trying to to bring, uh, you know, just the sense that, uh, you know, you're simplifying something that, uh, you know, loses more in the simplification process than it gains in the in the clarity of it. What what do you make of the sort of critiques that come from from that place for either him as an author or you know if you've encountered that yourself? Uh, what do you think of those sort of critiques, people? I think what you're describing used to be very common many years ago. I, I remember a lot of the stuff was directed towards Steve when he wrote the book The Language Instinct, yeah. I think, in, in 1994, a long time ago. Because then the idea of, of an established scientist, uh, he was at MIT by, at, at that point, um, writing a book meant to be a bestseller for a popular audience was considered to some extent selling out. And, or, you know, why aren't you working on your problems, why, on your specific scientific problems? Why are you doing this? Um, I think some of the, the bad feelings were just simple jealousy. You know, here's this guy and he's on, you know, he's on TV and he's making bags of money and people are admiring him. Um, I think things have changed a lot. So my own feeling is that what you're describing may exist in some places, but for the most part it doesn't. I think, um, at least in our field, there are so many people who also try to convey their work to the public that you know, suddenly you hear that some, one of your colleagues is writing an, article, an op-ed from the New York Times, you don't roll your eyes. You know, you say that's, that's, in fact, in some places in the UK and the US, it's considered, even from your, your standpoint of your university, to be a good thing, reaching out, public engagement. Yeah. So I don't think there's this level of, um, of scorn that we used to have. Now, there are other things that go on. There's still professional jealousy. I think there's still an instinctive resentment towards people who write and speak outside of their area. Now, you might say that's entirely justified if they get it wrong, but sometimes they don't get it wrong. Sometimes people are just annoyed that somebody in a different area knows their stuff better than they do. Yeah. And, and I see that, I see some of the, there's been some, I think, interesting and important critiques of, of Steve's work. But some of the work is like, oh my God, how, um, I don't think there's any, I, I have nothing interesting to say about his arguments. I'm just so offended that he's writing about, you know, World War II and he's not a historian. And I think, I think that's just foolish. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so one thing we talked about was uh, the, you know, starting off in writing for a general audience, trying to reach a broader, broader fan base. Uh, that's a pretty different skill set than the, than the academic one. What did you feel like you uh, most needed to improve when you started off doing that? And how did you go about doing it besides just the, you know, repetitions of, of, of writing and, and trying to make it better each time? Um, I needed to learn how to write in a different way. The tolerance for bad writing um, in academic writing is very high. You know, you could just write an applauding, uh, repetitious, uninteresting way, and that'd be fine. I, th I think good academic writing actually is, is a virtue, and, and even within the academic world, um, has its rewards. But still, a lot of the stuff um, you read in chapters and journal articles is borderline unreadable. So I really had to up my game. I really had to work on the model of popular writers I admired, and write in a way that's vivid and interesting and, and um, uh, accessible and clear. 
in, in, in every regard, it's harder to write for the public than for an academic audience. So I had to do that. Um, on a more practical level, I think the way people do it, certainly the way I did it, was I started off by trying to write for, uh, by, by pitching magazines and newspapers. And, and I still do that. I still regularly, like, a, I, I, I like writing for a popular audience, and I, I pitch things to, um, to the New Yorker, to the Atlantic, or to the New York Times. And, um, you know, often they say no. <laughs> Typically they say no. You need, um, it, to write for a, pub, a popular audience, you do have to have a bit of a thick skin. You have to have a reasonable tolerance for, for rejection. And you have to have the ability to cope with people saying shit about you on social media. Yeah, definitely. So when you were pitching those uh, sort of initial articles, and you know, obviously those are the harder ones to get when you're just starting out. Yes, it is. Um, was that always about your own work at the time, or was it? Did you you know draw on lots of different things you know in the way that you do now? Both, but it was largely on the topics I was thinking about. So so pretty much the first thing I published for a broad audience was an article on um, on belief in souls common sense dualism, yeah. which was an op-ed piece for the New York Times. And, um, and so, and that's something which I wrote a book about and I gave a lot of thought to, so I was well situated to do it. And uh, for the most part, I, I focused on, um, I, I've always been focusing on work I sort of had some connection with. I published popular articles on disgust, on language learning, um, certainly on empathy. But then, more and more recently, I've just taken an issue I'm really interested in, and I've done a lot of reading on it. And then I sort of say, oh, yeah, I have something I could say about this. So how do you navigate that transition from, okay, you know, I, I have a couple things to say, or I've said a couple things in these, uh, you know, outlets like the Atlantic or the New York Times. How do you transition from that into saying, like, okay, well, I need to spend a couple years and a few hundred pages fleshing all this out in a book? Yeah, it's... um. It, it, it's it's different. Um, I got to say, I love writing books. I, 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 I love it in the sort of way you could love something while each moment of doing it is kind of painful. Yeah. It's, um, it's to some extent nicely analogous to raising kids and raising young kids where, you know, raising my sons, uh, being their father, is the most significant and wonderful thing in my life. But most of the time when I was doing it, particularly when they were young, I was kind of bored and stressed out and wished I was somewhere else. And, um, and the same thing with writing a book. Yeah. But I love having a big project. You know, on my laptop in front of me, I have this, uh, I, I use a, a, a document preparation thing called Scrivener, which, has a, which is just built for writing books. They have separate chapters and everything like that. And I just have this single file. I've been, been pounding away at it right now for, um, for over a year a little bit each day, and we're thinking about it and it's been changing. And the feeling of a big project is just, it just adds so much to my life. I really enjoy it. And I have a lot of friends who write books and they'll say the same thing. For me, the worst part of it, in a sense, is when I'm done and then it's published. And then all of the sort of exciting, meaningful, intellectual things go away. And you're just looking on Amazon to seeing how many, see how many people are buying it and what the reviews are saying and what people are writing you about, trying to promote the book. And, you know, for me, the best part of it is right now, working on it. 
Well, you know, the good news if you're you is that uh, on empathy is still doing pretty well in terms of the uh, sales. So that, that you know, you, you could have you could have uh, worse outcomes uh, than uh, looking on Amazon and see you know a lot of positive stuff. You 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 can. I mean, um, if, if, if you check out Amazon, you realize that that. Uh, my empathy book has not met universal approval. I, oh, I believe and, uh, uh, wasn't boundless uh, in like intellectual uh, prowess or something like that. You know, uh, someone someone used uh, those words in there. I've got, yeah, I've gotten I've gotten all sorts of comments. Um, you know, really weird stuff, um, including like a some sort of death threat over Twitter, which I reported the guy for sending. Oh, that's classic. You know, yeah, you know, people, it's actually, there's some irony, you know, because they say, you know, um, I, I've had, I don't mean this entirely, well, I guess I do mean this, which is um, some of the most weirdest, most angry, most cruel critics I've encountered are people who claim to be champions of empathy. Yeah. So... <laughs> You know, it's like, it basically is like, you don't appreciate the virtues of empathy and how empathy is a source of all goodness. I'm a very empathic person. I wish you could come and burn down your house. <laughs> and it's just kind of, really? They must be winning the war for kindness, you know? Yes, that's right. Um, that's right. Uh, wait, so, okay, so I know you wrote for Psychology Today's blog back in the day. Um, and uh, I, you know, written some pieces for, you know, my blog on Psychology Today. And you just get the most heinous comments of people going after you uh you know like and, and and all that sort of stuff do you have any good comments that you remember from um you know your psychology today days or anything like that so you know i i have friends who are serious professional writers and they will tell you of one voice don't ever ever read the comments yeah never read the comments to anything so my one story was, one of my first things I published online was an article in Slate. Um, and it was an article in, um, about atheists. And it, it, you know, the question is, are atheists more or less moral than religious people? And my article was not, you know, in retrospect, was not that interesting. I said, well, you know, it's complicated, and I talked about stuff. But I was kind of pleased with it. And then when it came out, I, I looked at the comments. And the very first comment was, and it's all in caps, you, with just a you, are, just a R, you are a dumbass. <laughs> and so, so, you know, I kind of realized, okay, okay, that's how it's got to go. And of course, my immediate response uh. was, you know, dear sir, I, I, I don't feel I am a dumbass. Could you elaborate on your critique? But, you know, I, you, you, you must never, ever engage. Yeah. You must never feed the trolls. Oh, my God. And, and you know, having, having said that, um, one of the joys of writing popular books is you end up hearing from people who aren't professionals, but often who are really smart and really insightful and really critical and give you a, a critical perspective on your work that you might not get from somebody who, who has been from the same intellectual background as you. You get a sense of true intellectual diversity. Right. So particularly when I write something controversial like against empathy, I've really benefited from hearing from a lot of smart and critical people. And, you know, I joke about it and I'll talk. I make jokes about the weird stuff I hear. But for the most part, um, I've been hugely gratified by the smart comments I get on, on my work. And I don't mean like friendly comments. Sometimes they're very critical, but, they're, but, but often at a very high level. Right. And another thing that you, that you hear is, um, you know, these are people who are not professionally invested in these ideas. 
Yes. Uh, and so they, for the idea to be worth it to them, it actually has to play out in some form in their life. Um, and it's really cool to hear from the people who uh, you know have some sort of success in doing that and say, hey, the you know idea that you are talking about here, I actually use that to some positive benefit in my life. That's hugely important. And you don't really get that talking to academics because just the professional interest in the question is enough to, uh, you know, sort of uh, have, have it be entertaining and engaging enough. That's right. And so when I, when I started writing about empathy, I talked a lot about um, people who work in situations where um, we're dealing with people who are suffering and how to, how to cope with that and the role of empathy and maybe compassion and maybe too much empathy is a problem. And then as I, when I wrote about that, I heard from people. I heard from EMT workers and doctors and nurses and psychiatrists. You know, and sometimes they told me, oh, man, your analysis has really helped me understand what I was doing and made a big difference. Sometimes they told me, man, you got it wrong. But, but it was very, very useful to hear from people who actually were engaged in real world uh, situations that I've been talking about just theoretically. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite points that you made in that book was, you know, for example, talking about things like, uh, I think it was therapists um, and how well, uh, empathy can cloud uh, the ability of a therapist to uh, both have good, you know, sort of uh, judgment as well as make uh, the appropriate emotional connection with the, the patient. That's right. And I've, and I've heard from therapists and I've spoken to therapists who have different perspectives on that. So how did you, uh, you know, when did you decide to take on empathy, right? When did it like, when, what was that moment like where you're like, aha, there's, you know, something here that people are giving too much of the benefit of the doubt to empathy because it seems like this wonderful thing, but there's actually all of these ways in which we need to sort of moderate that uh, understanding of it. Yeah, there, there's sort of no single answer to that question. Many things push me that way, but in a sense, it was a natural next step. I've always been, I've always been, I've long been interested in the idea that our, um, our natural emotional responses evolve through natural selection um, built for a different time and different situation are poor guides when it comes to moral judgment, that we're at our best when we, when we um, turn away from them. And of course, I'm far from the first person to argue that. Uh, Peter Singer, I think, is probably the biggest uh, uh, defender of the view that we're just ill-suited in our emotions to make good moral judgments. We're much better with rationality. Josh Green is somebody else who makes this case. And so I made this case, I, I, I would always talk about disgust as an example of this. And I would say, look, you know, we have, many people have, a, have a, feel disgust towards uh, racial minorities or sexual minorities, but this is a terrible uh, grounding for moral decisions about what to do about them. For you to say, um, you know, oh, gay people should be thrown in prison because they disgust me is a terrible argument. And let's unpack why it's terrible. And let's use this to illustrate how bad disgust is. So I'd make this argument, and people would like it. Like, you know, nobody's, there's been some critics, but for the most part, people like it because it's a very liberal sentiment. It's in defense of things which people believe in in the first place. And then I wondered how far I could push it. And then I wondered, well, what if I take um, the, the emotion or the emotional attitude that's in some way beloved by everybody and tried to argue, make the same case for that? Well, that would be persuasive. That would be a contribution. And that got me to empathy. Do you think that people bought it in a sense, right? Like, do you think that people got what you were trying to... Because what you're saying is not 
there's a sort of discrepancy between being quote unquote against empathy and the very nuanced things you were trying to say. Do you feel like you were success, like you were happy with the amount of success you had with that? Um, well, so some proportion of people will only read the title of a book or they'll only hear the first, they won't even read the subtitle, which is the case for rational compassion. So some people read against empathy. They say, boy, this is one of these pro-psychopath books. You're saying we should be cruel to each other. You're against kindness and love. What a horrible view. So, and that's a, an embarrassingly high proportion of people just run with that. Um, but then I think I have persuaded some people to see the world differently. Hmm. And then other people I haven't persuaded. You know? And maybe, maybe they shouldn't be persuaded. Some people think they have good arguments against my view. Um, I think you would agree with me or disagree with me to different extents and different domains. And so I've, it sounds like such a cliche, but I'll say it anyway. One thing I hope to do with this book is to sort of start a conversation right. to get people to question things. Now, if you, if you think about empathy and you sort of say, well, I actually think you might say empathy does have great moral value. Well, you know, you and I don't agree, don't, may not be on the same page regarding your conclusion, but at least we're now in an intellectual realm where, where we're both talking about the merits of something and we're in a position to assess it. I think, um, I think much more generally, we're not reflective enough about moral decisions. And so if I could get people to um, reflect more on why they make moral decisions, and people both, lay people, but also psychologists and philosophers and so on, I think that that's, you know, somewhat of, a, of, of hopefully a valuable contribution. You know, another public service that you're doing uh, with, with this book is that um, empathy, sort of like consciousness, as uh, George Miller wrote, is a word worn smooth by a thousand tongues, right? And so yeah. everyone talks about empathy. Everyone means something slightly different from, uh, with it. There are some very important distinctions to make. You know, for example, with consciousness, there's, you know, the subjective experience of it versus, uh, you know, the, 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 the physical uh, components of it, right? And so you, you are, uh, yeah. you know, one of the big things you're doing is uh, sort of giving us a little bit more nuanced vocabulary to describe it. I see what you're saying, and, and I appreciate it. And I guess what I, how I would revise it would be, I hope to make, people distinguish things that they had previously not distinguished. Yeah. Distinguish me caring about you versus me feeling your pain, Yeah. Uh, for instance. And I think they're quite different. When it comes to vocabulary, I'm ready to throw up my hands. I mean, <laughs> people use the term empathy in so many different ways. And what everybody has in common is they believe that their way of using the word is exactly the right way. And so yeah. in some way, on some days... I, on the whole, I think my title was a good one. And for a book title, you really can make an argument for your title. And that was my title. Um, oh, it was a great But in book some title. days, I think it wasn't. I, I, it was a frustrating one. Yeah. But, uh... I mean, the, the problem with it is you, there's disadvantages to a book title where you immediately have to qualify it. <laughs> but um, there's, there's, a, there's a book I read. I think it had a title against feminism. And... Basically, it was a very pro-feminist book, but it was against a certain conception of feminism. But you can imagine the author all the time having to explain this. Right. Um, so I, I don't regret the title. But on the other hand, I could have made the same arguments in the book without ever using the word empathy. 
Right. I could have just talked about how our propensity to feel the feelings of other people and to, to, to see the world through their eyes, although it seems like a great thing, has all sorts of flaws and there's better ways to do it. Yeah. So um, I understand that your next book is on the pleasure of suffering. Is that true? It is. Right? It is. So was, it's on, um, did that did yeah. that lead it? Was that a direct sort of consequence of your interest in empathy? Did that roll out of that, or uh, how did you how did you come to that? It's actually pretty different. I've I've um, I've I talked about Paul Rosen before. I've always been interested in a phenomena. I think he was the first to describe it with this word, uh, called this phrase called benign masochism, which is you know, the pleasure we take in certain will in in certain chosen experiences of pain or suffering or deprivation like eating spicy foods or going into a hot bath or seeing a movie that might make you cry or might make you scream or gag and I've been interested in the draw of that and so originally that's what the book was going to be all about those sort of the pleasure we get from those sort of experiences but then as things happen it kind of has grown and um, and I'm also interested in the sort of suffering we willingly uh, obtain through more difficult pursuits, more extended pursuits, maybe not pleasurable pursuits like going to war or having children or training for a marathon, where I think part of the point is the suffering you go through to get that. That's part of what gives it value. And I don't think it's pleasure in any simple sense. It's more meaning or morality. And so my book is also about that. Well, I'm really looking forward to uh, reading it uh, once you get through writing it six minutes at a time. <laughs> um, Thank you very much. Well, uh, so I want to wrap up here with kind of a uh, left field question. Um, okay. And so uh, uh, I know you're interested in lots of different kinds of books, a lot of them great titles, uh, a lot of them fiction. Could you paint a picture of your mind in three books? Oh, God. Um, no. If that's your question. <laughs> Can I sum up three books that would characterize me as I see myself? Yeah, I don't want you to have to be bound to the best three books of all time, but I want you to get some different representation there of sort of the breadth of, of, of the way you think about things and who inspires you and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, any, any three books that you think give a, a you know, sort of unique perspective on the way you, 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 you see things. Hmm. <laughs> Can I, can I suggest that you send off that question in advance to people in the future? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, okay. Uh, I'll tell you some... The fiction writer who I think maybe most captures my own worldview, his characters sometimes think as I do. Um, I think he thinks as I do. I met him once uh, on stage and... I found him a charming, fun guy, but I love his novels, is uh, Ian McEwan. Hmm. So, um, to some extent, if you know your favorite, somebody's favorite writer, you learned a little bit about them, and, as for, and Ian McEwan would be it. Um, the American writer uh, would be um, Richard Russo. And Richard Russo, by the way, we're talking about titles, also has wonderful, playful titles. Uh, my favorite book, maybe my favorite book in the world in the sense of give, be giving it to most people because I love, I love academic comedies, is Straight Man. Mm. And Straight Man, of course, is cleverly ambiguous in all of its many meanings. 
Um, and another one of his books, which was made into a movie, is uh, Nobody's Fool, which is, again, a playful title because it has two meanings, um, which are almost opposites of each other. Yeah. And, and then to throw in, you asked for three, I've only read two novels by Jennifer Egan, but both of them really move me in a powerful way. Yeah. And so somehow I think that there's a kind of a click there as well. Well, that's great. Thanks for, thanks for entertaining my, uh, my, my oddball question. Thank you. Thanks for asking it. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Paul, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, this has been a ton of fun for me. I learned a lot. And like I said, uh, you know, you've been an inspiration to my interests and, and uh, you know, the, the kind of academic career that I aspire towards. And so I just want to thank you for everything you do and, uh, you know, for taking this time to talk today. This was a real pleasure, Cody. I look forward to meeting in person one day. Great. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Well, that's our show for today. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Cognitive Revolution, and I will see you again next week.